So we are in the middle of a, a mini-series just for West, as uh, Mark said, which is called Living in the Kingdom. It was all about what it means for us to live as uh, members of the Kingdom of God. At our church weekend away last summer, we spent um, the whole weekend looking at this subject, delving into it, looking at what is the Kingdom of God, uh, what does it mean for us to be the community of the Kingdom, and how are we ambassadors of the Kingdom. Um, do check those out. They're on our website and app if you want to recap on those messages from last summer, which are brilliant, just foundational stuff about this kind of big subject of the kingdom of God. So let's recap then as to what is the kingdom of God before we we launch into today. What is the kingdom of God? And this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Okay, this is how he defines the kingdom of God. I think this is an excellent definition. So the kingdom of God is the realm in which God reigns and rules. Very simple. It's not a physical place, not a place with geographical boundaries. It's a realm in which God rules and reigns. It is present where men and women have subjected themselves to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is the church. And the church is the manifestation of the kingdom of God. For my money, that is a spot-on definition of what it means to be the kingdom of God. And and the church's role in that. We are, as the church, we are the manifestation of the kingdom of God together. As we live out our lives together, as individuals who have let the rule and reign of Jesus come into our life, then the kingdom of God is demonstrated on the earth. It's amazing, okay? The kingdom of God, you know, God's kingdom can can break out anywhere in the earth, but it is especially present in the church. And a lot of people have kind of mixed views of church, perhaps negative uh, and positive experiences of church, but God says that the church, when it's working right, the church is the, the community of the kingdom, the place where the kingdom of God is most demonstrated on the earth. What about us as individuals? How do we enter the kingdom of God as individuals? Well, we enter through repentance and faith in Jesus. Through being born again into uh, a relationship, a living relationship with the Lord Jesus. It's through allowing him to wash us. That's one of the kind of metaphors that's used, isn't it, in the New Testament? Being washed, being reborn and, and washed. So we allow Jesus to wash us clean and we live for his glory. So if you're in the kingdom, then you've acknowledged your need for him and you've acknowledged that he is everything you need. Jesus alone is everything you need. If you're a person that can say that, I know that that Jesus is my salvation, that he is the one I need to be washed clean and to be given a new start. If you can say that, then it's true to say that you have entered the kingdom. You've surrendered to him. And that's what happens really when it talks about the kingdom of God coming. It's when men and women surrender to Jesus. Just as the the definition says, they subjected themselves to him. The kingdom of God comes. The rule, the reign of Jesus comes into a person's life. And when that happens, everything changes. Ultimately, the world changes. And obviously, most of us here... that's the case. We've invited Jesus into our lives. We're living in the kingdom. Let's just be honest, we're works in progress when it comes to that. The kingdom isn't perfectly demonstrated in us. We know that, but it's broken in 
And it's, and it's coming, it's coming increasingly as we increasingly live out our lives and, and submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus in our lives, then his kingdom comes increasingly in increasing measure in our lives. And last time we were looking at the subject of hospitality, which you remember um, I defined as a willingness to welcome people into our homes who don't ordinary be- ordinarily belong there. Okay, As we extend the warmth, the love, the grace of Jesus to others through practicing hospitality, we invite people into an experience of his grace. We create a space for people to meet Jesus. And I want us as a church and as a site to be a welcoming, hospitable place. As I said last time, I think we are. I think we're good at this and we want to grow in it. But also for, for, for us, for this space here, for this, for this Sunday meeting gathering, uh, I want us to be welcoming and hospitable. And that's why we're having once a month lunches here, um, bring and share lunches after church, which we've got our first one today. Um, just want to encourage you as in that. Why don't you invite your friends to those? Uh, I invited my neighbours. Unfortunately, weren't able to make it, but maybe you'll get to meet them another time. Um, but I, I just think it's a great opportunity for us to, to practice some hospitality together uh, as, we, as we sit around a table and eat together and enjoy each other's company at the end of the meeting. And it's a good opportunity to reach out. And I believe that God wants to call us to reach out to, to those who are far from him, to those who would never normally walk into a church. And I'm talking about people at the fringes of society. Uh, so let, I just want to be really specific. I would love to see us welcome people from the LGBT community in here. I'd love to see us welcome people from other religions, other cultures, um, the poor, the, 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 the broken, the disabled, the misunderstood. Wouldn't that be great for us to be a, a welcoming community where people like that can come in? Well, that was my message from last time. I'm not going to repeat it. Today, got something new and fresh. Uh, and if you remember, what I said last time was this little mini-series on the kingdom of God. I want to look at three different areas that I believe um, partly are strengths for us already as a site. These are things that you guys are already doing, we're already living out. So there's strengths to play to and develop in. There are also things that I feel God is laying on us prophetically. I think he wants us to get, lay hold of these things and grow in them. And I just thought a good way to kick off 2018 was to look at some of these areas. Um, and the second of these today is service. The subject of service. The service of the king. So let's start with the definition. What, what is service? What does it mean to serve? Well, most basically, service is a massive part of the kingdom of God. As it says in 1 Peter 4, this was the passage we were looking at last time, but a little later on, 1 Peter 4, chapters 10 and 11, it says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. So we use whatever gift we've received to serve others. Okay, so gifts God gives us. He's given us natural gifts, endowed us with natural gifts. He's also given us gifts of the Spirit, spiritual gifts. And what that is, is when it's something that's new, something that's, that's come as a result of being a Christian and being filled with the Spirit. There's, there's points in the New Testament where it lists what the spiritual gifts are. And he, he's given those to all of us. All of us, if you have received Jesus, if you're living in the kingdom, if you have the Holy Spirit, then he wants to give you uh, gifts of the Spirit. And what are they for? They're not for our benefit. They're for others. They're to serve others with. Serving 
is a form of worship. And it is also a way to express worship, a way to express gratitude for what Jesus has done for us and to share the grace we've been given. So let's start with a question just to get your minds thinking about this, this subject of service and of gifts. Why don't you think about what, what do you think the gifts God has given you are? What, what natural gifts has he given you? And what spiritual gifts has he given you? Okay, just think, think about that. Bring those things to mind. Maybe your gifts will be already be being played out in the workplace or in uh, the sphere of the family or in other parts of life or already in church in different ways. Each of us have got different gifts. Now, here's, here's the question. When you think about your gifts, now consider this. Are you using your gifts to serve others? Because that's the absolutely key question when it comes to gifts that God has given you. Are you using your gifts to serve others? And there's a number of things that can, that can block us on this. There's a number of things that can stop us. Apathy. I, I, I can't be bothered. I, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. So I don't want to serve. I don't want to um, step out. Fear. Maybe I'm a bit scared to step out. I don't want to, I feel like I might have something, but in order to use it, I've got to actually step out and do it, and that's scary. Maybe pride, which can look like, where's my platform? Why isn't my gift being recognized here? These things can all uh, stand in the way. I just wanted to get us thinking about that. I'm not going to address that straight away, but I just wanted to get us thinking about those things. We'll return to this later in terms of specifically what our spiritual gifts are, how we're using them to serve others. But whatever stage we're at with this today, we can all learn about this subject from the king. This is the title of this talk is The Service of the King. So what better place to see the service of the king in action than looking at a passage in John 13, which is a passage from Jesus' life. So if you have, have a Bible, you want to look it up, and want to follow, we're going to be looking at John chapter 13. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, so it may be diff- different to the one that you've got, but um, the verses will appear on the screen. And we're just going to walk through this brilliant, amazing, dramatic story from Jesus' life and uh, see what we can learn from it about this subject. Okay, so John 13 um, kicks off in verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What's the context here? Okay, what's happening in the story? We've dived in. Let's explain. Let's expand a little bit. Where, where are we at in the story? Well, there's a, there's a terrific drama building up in the narrative of John's gospel here. Um, what we've seen here at this moment is, is almost that we've reached the end of everything that's gone before. All of the first 12 chapters of John have outlined Jesus' life, his ministry, all the things that he did and taught publicly. And really, there's, a, there's an end almost to his public ministry. And then what we're ge- beginning to see here is the build-up to Jesus' passion, to his death and resurrection. And John spends more chapters than any of the other gospel writers uh, lingering on this utterly unique occasion. Now, there's never, never before or since has there been a Thursday evening like this one, okay? even at a church central life group. There's never quite been a Thursday evening like this one. Um, and so the next few chapters of John talk about this. 
what was Passover? Passover was obviously a, a big annual festival um, that the Jews celebrated, and they celebrated it with real pride uh, under Roman occupation. And um, really, it would have been much like how Christmas is for us now, like the biggest festival of the year, massive thing, um, a lot of anticipation and preparation preceding it, really. People building up to it, a lot of, a lot of build-up, a lot of a sense of, of, of this being a big event. So it was a time of anticipation. It was, it was, it was the eve of Passover, just before it, it started. And Jesus knew this, and he'd always known that this day was coming. And throughout John, you see, and the other Gospels, sometimes people say things to him, and he says, look, my time hasn't come yet. It's not my time yet. My time has not yet come. But now he's saying he knew that the hour had come. So it's like the time has come. D-Day was approaching. It was, it was here. Jesus knew that it was nearly time for him to go through with the Father's plan of going to the cross for humanity. One of the things that happened in the Passover festival was that they took a lamb and slaughtered it as a sacrifice. And this was a memorial, you remember from the story, of uh, when the Israelites came out of Egypt and they took a, 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 a clean lamb and they killed it and they daubed the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And this was a, a sign to the angel of death that they would be passed over. That's why they call it the Passover, because death passed over them. And Jesus is about to become the Passover lamb, the lamb of God that becomes our Passover because of what he's done, because of his death on the cross. Death passes over us and we are given life. Hallelujah. That's what he knows is about to happen. So it's it's a tremendously significant occasion. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So all that's about to follow, all that John is introducing is all about Jesus showing his love, showing the extent of his love. So in, in, in chapters 14 to 16, there's, there's, there's an amazing discourse of him talking to his disciples. Then there's a, a, a prayer. We get in, we get, we, in chapter 17, we get to hear this prayer of Jesus to the Father. Then in chapter 18, we hear about his arrest. And finally, in chapter 19, his, his crucifixion. All this is part of his love. It's part of him showing his love for you. And just as we could go on, as we walk on into this story, many of you have probably already clocked what the story is and it's a familiar one to you, but I really want you to hear it fresh today. Okay? If, you, if you belong to Jesus, then everything that Jesus says and does here is said and done for you in a very intentional and personal way. I can't, I can't manufacture that. I just want to say that to you and just... So open your hearts because I think Jesus wants to come to you in a fresh way and show his love, the full extent of his love, even through this story that we're looking at today. What else can we say about the setting? Well, it's Thursday evening. The sun has gone down. It's supper time. All the preparations have been made for the Passover meal. Um, The food was there. Food was on the table. And there was also uh, a pitcher and a wash basin and a long linen cloth. Why were these things here? Why were these things part of the preparations? Well, Jesus and his friends uh, had walked all the way from Bethany to get here. Their feet were only protected by sandals, and they would have become exposed to dirt and dust along the road. And in such circumstances as this, the washing of feet was a customary thing. It was, it was a part of their culture. It was, it was embedded into hospitality kind of um, uh, 
norms for that, for that culture. So um, that's what the wash basin was there for. The host of the meal would normally arrange for a servant to come and clean the feet and wash the feet. It was, after all, a menial task. Okay, in, in first century kind of rabbinic writings, they, they said that this was something that should not be done even by another Jew. It should be done by a, a Gentile or some, some servant, some kind of lesser person. It was a menial task. You remember when John the Baptist was compared to Jesus? You remember what he said to people? He said, no, 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 I'm not worthy to kneel down and unloose this guy's sandal straps as if to wash his feet. I'm not even worthy of that. So that's how he compared himself to Jesus. He knew that Jesus was the master, that Jesus was the one. He wasn't even worthy to wash his feet. But here in the upper room, there was a bit of a quandary. There was no servant. All the other preparations had been made except this. So it was embarrassing. Okay, It's a bit like um, coming down at Christmas and having Christmas Day and there being no presents. Okay, in our culture, that exactly. There's a, a sort of a <laughs> reaction of complete shock and, 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 ter- and sort of embarrassment. In our culture, that would be a, a terrible faux pas. You just wouldn't do Christmas without presents. Um, and it's a bit like that. It would have felt like that. There would have been this elephant in the room, which was their dirty feet. And especially for something like the Passover and, and how important kind of ritual clean, cleanliness was to the Jews. This was, this was a big deal. It was a big deal. So what happened? Well, one thing that's clear, the disciples didn't do anything about it. None of them made the first move. None of them wanted to cross that boundary of, 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 of washing their friend's feet. None of them wanted to take the place of a servant. Surely that wasn't the right thing to do. And clearly this embarrassment went on for quite a long time. Um, the disciples occupied their places around the table. It would have been a U-shaped table where they sat and reclined into it so the feet were, were pointing out. The food was on the table. The meal had begun. But still no one offered to perform the duty of the servant. And Jesus, of course, was fully aware of this. And he was, in fact, he was aware of a few things at this moment. He was aware that all the disciples were waiting for something to happen. He was also fully aware that one of those with him was a traitor. Verse 2, the evening meal was in progress. It had begun. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. The devil was there at this meal. He was there. He'd entered Judas. Judas was there. Judas had set his face on what he was about to do. And Jesus knew this. Absolutely amazing when you consider what goes on to happen. Jesus was also aware of his own standing. In verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus had absolutely no doubt about who he was and the power that God had given him. So, what does he do? Well, if this is a Hollywood movie, he might have sparked into a flashy confrontation and zapped Judas with a blast of holy wrath. Maybe some of you think, oh, that sounds pretty cool. That would be a good plot for a Hollywood movie. And you know, if he'd have done that, it wouldn't have been entirely inappropriate. 
especially given what we've just seen in verse 3. He knew who he was. He knew he'd come from God and was going back to God. And he knew that God had put all power at his disposal. So this is where it hits that it's so incredible what he actually does. Verse 4. He got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing, wrapped the towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, it's easy to think, yeah, yeah, I know this story. Okay, Owen, service, kingdom of God, right, I got it, yeah. I've set you an example. You go and do that, wash each other's feet. Great, I've got you. Easy to think that. Nothing new for me here. Thanks, but, you know, I know this message. But please, okay, linger with me here. Meditate with me for a few moments on this. Because it is utterly amazing. Jesus is the highest rank imaginable. Just just think about rank and power and authority. Think about the, the layers of hierarchy within your workplace, uh, the layers of hierarchy within, within government and within the world, the people that are world leaders, the people that are seen as being the, what, the highest ranking officials, the ones with the most power. Jesus sits high above all of them. He's the highest rank in the entire universe. And this picture, I'm sorry it's not a very good picture, you can't see it that well, but that picture of the exalted Jesus on the throne in heaven as king reigning, that is an entirely appropriate way for us to see and perceive of Jesus. Right? He is the Lord reigning on high. The highest of the high. And yet, here he is as well. It's the same person. That is the exact same person. Lowest of the low. Menial task. Washing feet like a slave. Isn't that amazing? That is utterly amazing. Philippians 2, you know, talks about this. Jesus, although he was in very nature God, Jesus is this guy on the left, in very nature God, and yet he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped at, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. This would be like, I mean, there is no analogy for this because Jesus is the highest of the high and he makes himself the lowest of the low, and obviously he's going to go lower when he goes to the cross. But he's going pretty low today, washing his disciples' feet. This would be like the Queen of England. Okay, I don't know, have you been watching The Crown? Has anyone watching that on Netflix? It's a great show. And one of the things that you always see is, you know, every time the Queen walks into a room, there's a load of servants running around. They open the door for her so she doesn't have to open a door. And they rush around, they dress her, and they feed her. And, and there's a whole kind of entourage of servants rushing around after her. And calling her your majesty and bowing and there's all this kind of amazing respect being shown to her which I guess you know she 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 is is appropriate for her standing as the queen imagine if the queen turned up at the 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 grottiest council estate and went into the backyard of a house there and took out a black bin liner and starts cleaning up all the rubbish in the backyard that 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 is a that is a little picture of what's going on here the highest of the high makes themselves the lowest of the low. Jesus was willing to do the annoying, messy things that a slave would do. 
The things which in the world we secretly hope someone else will do because we don't want to waste our time and we don't want to demean ourselves. And John, as he was writing this down, he's obviously, you know, he's, he's impacted by this, right? Because he's writing it out blow by blow accounts. Like Jesus, he took off his cloak. He, he took the bar. He took the, he could, he's almost like he couldn't believe what was happening, what his eyes were seeing. John, if you remember, it's recorded in another gospel, in Mark's gospel, has a spat one day on the road with his brother James, and they're arguing about, well, who's the greatest? And one of the, you know, they're both arguing over who's the best out of the two of them in the kingdom of God. And this is what Jesus says to them on that occasion in Mark 10. He says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Highest of the high, lowest of the low. And for my money, this is one of the, one of the reasons why we can be confident when we talk about Jesus as being king. Okay, king in our world today is associated with quite an old-fashioned form of government, maybe a totalitarian rule, you know, a king, an all-powerful king who, um, you know, maybe is a dictator. And nowadays, we like our leaders to be much more accessible, much more democratic. We like that, don't we? But we can be confident to call Jesus the king because he is the servant king. And that's another reason why there's no hierarchy in, in the community of the kingdom. Now, there's no, there is no hierarchy. There's no top at the bottom. There's not kind of, you know, the pastors and the elders at the top and the per- people who serve in the media. No, 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 no. Because if the, the king, who is at the top, has come down here, then why should we have hierarchies? Absolutely not. We should be able to be willing to serve in the lowliest way, just as he is. And obviously he goes on to, uh, after he's done this amazing thing, he goes on to explain what he's doing to his disciples. Uh, picks it up in verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example to you that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. So Jesus very clearly (laughs) interprets what he's just done and explains it to his disciples. And there's two key key phrases out of these verses that I just want to pull out and, uh, and, and think about together. First one is, is this phrase, I have set you an example. I have set you an example, or, or other translations will say, I have set you a pattern to follow. Now, in some church traditions, literal foot washing, um, they have as, as like a sacrament. They think, you know, this, we, we do this, we wash each other's feet, and it's a part of remembering what Jesus has done. Um, Personally, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I don't think he's, he's, it's not like when later on he does the bread and the cup and institutes communion and he says, do this in remembrance of me. And he institutes a sacrament for us to follow. Okay, this is a bit different. I, it's more that he's setting an example or a pattern of behavior. All right, and what he's, what he's showing is 
This is what service looks like in the kingdom of God. This is what it is. It's a willingness to serve, a willingness to, to do the thing that's, that's, the willingness to go low, if you like. Whatever your station in life, whatever the world says about your status, however much you've achieved, whatever level you've got to, you go low. Because that's what Jesus did. The only people suitable to represent Jesus are the lowly, the humble, the servant-like, the self-denying. I've given you an example. I've given you a pattern to follow. And just to say on this, that this is, really, this is really significant. This is really significant for us. This is one of the reasons I wanted to, to bring this message because this is, if we get this right, we will honour Jesus in the way we live and we'll live out what it means to be the community of the kingdom. You, you hear a lot these days about influence. It's a word that, particularly in our kinds of churches, you hear talked about, you hear bounded about. Christians are called to influence. We're called to influence society. What does that mean? What does influence mean? How did Jesus influence on this occasion? He got down on his knees and he washed the feet of his disciples. He did the low, menial thing. And you know, there's something in this about this phrase, love the one in front of you. I just felt that was important to share in this, in this context. Love the one in front of you. You know, Sometimes we think about kingdom influence and you think, whoa, I've got to go and influence hundreds and thousands of people. I've got to uh, rise to the top in my profession and I've got to, um, I've got to be the best I can be and, I've, and, and I, I'm not really honouring God unless I'm influencing hundreds of people. That's not true. You influence and love the one in front of you and you make it an influence to them and you're serving them and you're following the example of Jesus in their life. And this is true for us in every sphere of life. So there's a great quote here from Don Carson. When you walk into a hospital or a home, a place of pain, sorrow, or hope, Jesus is walking in, wearing your skin, speaking in your tone of voice. That's influence. That's the kind of influence he calls us to. And you know, God's heart is for the poor. His heart is for those who are at the, at the margins. His heart is for those who are, who are the low, the low in society. Those are the people he went to, right? And those are the people he, he calls us to as well. And there is, there's a privilege about serving and loving people in the most basic and menial way. There will be some that he calls to positions of influence. There will be some that he raises up, but that's, that's up to him. He calls us to be faithful in the little things. Okay. The second phrase here um, that I want to pick up on is, you will be blessed if you do these things. So I've set you an example. I've set you a pattern. You'll be blessed if you do these things. According to Stephen G. Post, a professor of preventative medicine at Stony Brook University in New York, serving others actually releases feel-good chemicals into the brain. It's medical, it's fact. There's also further empirical evidence to show that serving others reduces stress and reduces pain. And there's over 40 international studies confirming that serving others 
leads to a longer lifespan. It's good for us. <laughs> That's how God has made it to be. Why is this? I believe it's a characteristic of God's kingdom. He said, didn't he, it's more blessed to give than to receive. If you give of yourself, if you serve others, if you, if you put, lay your life down for others, you will be blessed. The practice of humility imparts blessing. And it's the blessedness of being more like Jesus, of walking with him in his shoes, of going low, of going where he has gone. It's the most deeply joyful, satisfying life, actually, to do that. And I know many of you could probably give examples of how you've experienced that, the blessings of serving others. But it is a blessing. It is a blessing. Now, we could end it there. That's the lesson. Okay, follow example, serve. That's great. There's a little uh, bit that you might have noticed I missed out in the story. Okay, and this is uh, verses 6 to uh, 10 where um, good old Peter crops up and sticks his, uh, <laughs> puts his foot in his mouth, as often is the way. Pre-Pentecost Peter um, does a good bit of that throughout the Gospels. So um, Jesus is going around washing his disciples' feet, and he gets to Peter, and Peter's like, no, 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 you, you mustn't wash my feet. Surely I should wash your feet. And Jesus says to him, Peter, unless you let me wash you, you have no part in me. So then, of course... Oh, in that case, wash my whole body as well. <laughs> Typical Peter, like very impulsive and uh, big reactions. But here's the thing here. We need to let Jesus wash our feet. It's an important part of this message. We need to let Jesus wash our feet. Remember what I said at the beginning? How do you enter the kingdom of God? You believe in Jesus and he washes you. He washes you clean. See, it might seem a bit of an overreaction to Jesus. He says, well, unless you let me wash your feet, you've got no part in me, Peter. Sounds pretty harsh. He's been following him for three years, and Jesus is saying, well, if you don't let me wash your feet, it's like your salvation's at stake here, is what he's saying. But that's the point. You see, sometimes with serving, we can think, no, Lord, I need to serve you. You can't serve me. I'm the one who needs to get down on my knees and serve you, surely. Well, yes, that's correct. Peter was, was factually right. But Jesus says, no, no, you've got to let me wash you. You've got to let me wash you. You've got, to let you. you've got to let him wash you, as it were, in his blood. The blood of Jesus that cleanses us from sins. It's the only way for us to be made clean. The only way. And it's from that position of being clean that we then serve. And that's a really, really, really important distinction we've got to know the grace of God on our lives we've got to know the grace of God that's cleansed us and that's washed us in order for us then to be able to give out and uh, and, and and help other people so in the same way that hospitality was about giving and receiving grace we've received the grace of God he's welcomed us home therefore we welcome others in the same way this is no different Jesus has washed our feet. Jesus has cleansed us fully. So therefore, we go and do it for others as well. and We follow his example. And really, to, to, to be humbled enough to go and do the menial tasks, to go and serve, to be the lowest of the low, you've got to grasp the gospel of what Jesus has done for you. Now listen, there's just one thing I want to address here. 
Um, because I know with, with this whole subject of serving, there's different levels in the room of response and different levels of, uh, of serving is kind of going on. I know for some of you, um, the issue is actually capacity. So you, you know this stuff, you're doing it, you're serving, and actually you feel, I want to do more, but can I? Can I actually do it and remain sane? <laughs> I know that's the question for, for, for many of us. And I just want to remind you of, of another story, just very quickly. You remember the feeding of the 5,000? Do you remember what happens? Uh, there's 5,000 people, they're needing food. The disciples come to Jesus and he says, you give them something to eat. And they're like, what? How can we feed 5,000 people? How on earth can we do that? And he says, well, what have you got? Okay, five loaves and two fish. There comes to Jesus. Jesus does a miracle. He gives them stuff and they go out and feed people. They come back to him. He gives them some more. They go out and feed some more people. They come back. And that's the pattern. They come to Jesus. They give him what they've got. He multiplies it. And then he gives them enough to go out. Do you see that? Do you see the lesson that's in there? There's, it's about coming to Jesus and giving of what he gives us. And I know this, this might sound obvious, but for many of us who serve, we just do it in our own strength. We're just locked into that. We, 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 we draw from ourselves rather than drawing from him. And we don't have to. We don't have to do that. Because just like the disciples who fed the 5,000, they come to Jesus. It's actually the disciples that fed the 5,000. They're the ones that gave out and served the food. Jesus was the one who did the miraculous. Jesus was the one who multiplied it. So our capacity grows when we serve out of what Jesus has given us. When we're serving because we receive and give out his grace, then our capacity can grow. And I actually believe that God wants to meet some people today and increase capacity because it's about overflow of grace. That famous prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, Lord, help me to muster the peace to go and give it to people. No. Make me a channel of your peace. A channel. That's, that's what we can be like. That's how we can serve. So, in your workplace, in your families, and in church. Love the one in front of you. Take the opportunities God gives and serve in the power that he has and be willing to go low. Just to finish off, what the biggest gifts that you've got, we started off with, are you using them to serve others?